Welcome to the search for real answers in a modern world, where challenging topics are met with honest and thoughtful dialogue. This is Truth Seekers Forum. In this episode, we'll be continuing our multi-part series exploring the Apostles' Creed. And once again, I'm joined by Pastor Andy Lewis. Hey, hey. And also Dr. Adam Nye. Good day. So gentlemen, we are in the midst of this as a reminder to our listeners and to you as well. We've got a couple of ground rules that we work with. That is, nothing is off limits as far as the questions that will be posed to you guys. You do not know what those questions are. And obviously, disagreement and pushback is welcome during the course of this exploration. And this is our fourth episode of this multi-part series. And Andy, if you want to, just catch us up on what we're going to be breaking down and exploring today. Yeah, so basically what we've been doing is, is kind of, a, you know, previous episodes have been specific questions that people ask. A couple, there's been a couple of episodes of very random questions. This one we've been camping on for quite some time because mm-hmm. I think it sort of sets the tone of what this is about, this podcast is about, of just sort of trying to honestly and authentically present what do Christians believe. So what we've been doing is going back to this very ancient creed, the Apostles' Creed, and working our way through it. So we're about, I don't know, somewhere around halfway through it. It's actually a short creed, but we've had a lot of fun talking. (laughs) Yes, we have. So... You want me? To, I, I'll I'll keep reading. Sure. From yeah. Where, go ahead. Where Set we, us up. Set you know, us up. we were really we were in the middle of discussing about what does the the Orthodox Church believe about Jesus, and here's where it continues on. After it talks about born of the Virgin Mary, it goes on to say about Jesus that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, died, and was buried, descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence, my translation of this, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And that's what we want to talk about right now, about, you know, the person of Christ. After he was born of a Virgin Mary, okay, mm-hmm. this is kind of an encapsulation of of the totality of what the Scriptures tell us about his life, his ministry, and what he accomplished at the cross, what he accomplished through the resurrection, right, and where he right. sits now at the right hand of the Father. Mm-hmm. And so for those that maybe not as familiar with the creed or the situation as some of the rest of us are, who is Pontius Pilate and why is that significant? It's an interesting question because he's he's an interesting historical figure in one of only three human beings mentioned in this creed, hmm. right? It's Jesus yeah. Christ, the Virgin Mary, right. and Pontius Pilate. Why does yeah. he get to go in that list? Right, right. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a bizarre thing. It, it's He's a Roman governor in, in charge of Jerusalem at the time of Christ's life, and it's under his authority that the gruesome things the creed goes on to describe happens. Hmm. Under him, it's under Pontius Pilate's authority that Jesus suffers and dies. Yeah. And, you know, he it's it is interesting that he is selected as as that kind of that character who's who's placed in there. I I think part of it is, is because he is sort of representative of how we as human beings allowed the Christ, the Messiah figure Mm -hmm. to suffer and die. Yeah. You know, he was like, and he, you know, he weakly said, I wash my hands Mm -hmm. of all of this. Right. He didn't wash his hands of anything. Right. He was very much a participant in it. 
And so just clearing it up for, again, for those mm-hmm. folks that may be totally unfamiliar with this, is, is Pontius Pilate, is that a name? Is that a title? What What is that? Yes. That's, that's, that's the name of this person, as Adam okay. said, who was the governor, a, a Roman citizen who was governor over Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, Israel, they had a really weird convoluted setup at that point. Right. He's, yeah, he's governor over uh, sort of Judea. Judea. Yeah. yeah. The southern uh, part of the ancient country of Israel. Okay. So for uh, people to understand like yeah. history, just in terms of history, under the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, which is quite ironic, it, they, Rome would basically come in and crush your country. And then mm-hmm. what they would do is they would set up their own governors and they'd give you your own form of governance. And that's what was happening during the time of Christ is that Israel was given its own sort of form of governance. They, they had their own religious leaders. They could still do their thing to a point. And then there was a limit. And this guy was sort of Rome's guy. Gotcha. To kind of keep everything sort of tamped down. And there was a lot of concern that obviously definitely exploded in 70 AD, mm-hmm. or which is now called uh, Common Era, CE. Right. Um, when, you know, the the Jews just couldn't stand Rome anymore and all that kind of stuff. So Pontius Pilate is this figure who's trying his best to sort of sit within the tensions of religious fervor and nationalism right. and Rome's desire to rule and to try to keep it all in peace, and that's actually part of what's playing with him as a character, well, as a person, mm-hmm. in this declaration of what it is that we believe. This is a man who's trying, who's recognizing that, you know, if this man is in fact what is claimed the, the Jews are expecting, the yeah. king of the Jews, the Christos, the Messiah, this thing is a powder keg that's mm. going to go off right. at like a, like a stick of dynamite, and Rome did not want that. So he's trying his best to try to appease both sides, failing equally in both, both places. So in, in, in that, to me, the, the answer to the question of why, you know, why Pontius Pilate's name is in this creed, it's there because of his, his historical place, but it's yeah. also he kind of represents the other side of humanity mm. uh, yeah. uh, from the Virgin Mary. You've got right. these two other people you know, represented – this whole creed is telling us about how God has entered into human history and engaged with humanity. And so you have humanity depicted in this creed, I think, under, under two almost opposite types, hmm. where you have the Virgin Mary, someone who is uh, fairly lowly in the ranking of sort of human uh, worth in, in the culture at their time. She's, right. a, she's a woman. She's right. um, you know, Nazarene. They're from the, you know, the north. Yeah. Um, and, and she has this place of being the mother of God hmm. within the story. But then Pontius Pilate stands for really for human power, mm. for the uh, the quest of humanity to rule. And it's under that name that Christ suffers and dies. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, because the, the following line talks about Christ crucified, died and buried. But going back to this first line that Christ suffered, what does that suffrage look like? Is it beyond what we read in the next line, crucified, died, and buried? Is there other types of suffering that were was included with that? And if so, what does that look like? Yeah, boy, did he suffer. Mm-hmm. I mean, to really understand the whole um, exercise of Roman crucifixion, a lot of historians, the ones that I've read, it say that it's probably one of the most brutal forms of, again, speaking to, to power, mm-hmm. uh, most brutal forms of not only public humiliation, mm-hmm. but brutalizing hu- humanity and publicizing it in order to make a point. Yeah. Um, so yeah, n- not just the excruciating aspect of crucifixion, where you know basically you're strung up on a cross in order that you would basically suffocate to death. You're not right. bleeding out or anything like right. that. You're right. literally suffocating to death, and you're suffering while you're doing it. But leading up to it, 
being, you know, lashed open with, uh, you know, these whips that often would have glass or bone in it. So it's flaying you open. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when you think about that with the dehydration, the blood loss, he collapses, we know, in the New Testament story. Somebody has to carry his cross for him. Um, The crown of thorns on his head. I mean, it was, he was brutalized. Mm. Um, The Passion of the Christ, if anybody has seen it, that was one of the things that people really had a hard time watching. Like, really? But that, yeah, really. I mean, (laughs) it was, it was suffering. And he, and the thing that this creed gets at is that it should have been me. Mm. This is the thing that we as, you know, those who believe is to really recognize it's like I bring nothing to the table before God. There is nothing that's going to make him like me or be his friend or mm. to earn salvation or to earn eternal life. And yet there's something deep within me that kind of goes, yeah, but I still like the idea that somehow I bring something to the table with God. I bring nothing to mm. the table with God. And it costs God the brutalization of his son and the the obscene, uh, grotesque, murder crucifixion on a cross and it should have been me Hmm. and he did it for me yeah Hmm. that's what this is kind of really getting into yeah the and i would add to on the on the suffering part there the the physical dimension of it is staggering but there is also kind of a relational and social element you mentioned how it's public to make a point yeah and there that is a kind of i think that adds to the the element of suffering that there is uh he's he's doing all this under mockery yeah and then also his closest friends abandon him. Yeah. There's, there's, uh, right. And I think that, <clears throat> sorry, I think pastorally that's important. It is. Yeah. Because that, that brings his human experience so close to us. Like you said, mm. it should have been me. So in standing in our place, he's, he stands so fully in our place that he doesn't just experience a really painful day. He experiences this l- life that culminates in abandonment mm. and mockery. Right. And, you know, uh, execution as a criminal. Right. Right. Yeah. And even the thing when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which by the way, just so you know, that's a shout out to a Psalm, Mm -hmm. Psalm 33. So when people, when you, when you hear that 22, no, thank you. It was, it was a a two digit one. Thank you. 11 maybe. No. Yeah. It was 22. (laughs) Um, it was a shout out to this whole Psalm that talks about what it's like to feel rejected. Well, Mm. up until this point, I mean, in his life, it didn't mean that God had forsaken him and that God the Father was, you know, didn't, wasn't looking at him anymore. But what it meant is, is that he was feeling the inky blackness that we're born into as fallen human creatures. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was like, oh my gosh, right. what is this like to feel like, where is God? Is he out there? Does he love me? Does he right. care about me? Right. He felt that. Yeah. And he felt that for us and for our sake. And uh, yeah. The way you just put that was really interesting. Because it's interesting to me as I'm looking at this creed that this this particular creed, the Apostles' Creed, is so matter-of-fact, it actually doesn't assign any particular theological meaning to it. Right. It just narrates it. Mm-hmm. The the mm-hmm. Nicene Creed, which does come a little bit later, does add the line, very close to the way you just put it, for us and our salvation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it goes into this. Because yeah. it at least had to sort of, like, right. why does this happen? Here, here's why. Yeah. Right. The Apostles' Creed, it seems very intentionally minimalist in the sense, like, this is what the Scriptures tell us yeah. about who uh, who Christ is and what he did. And then it does sort of actually, I think, leave a lot of room, which is healthy for the church, for the for the church to engage in the conversation about, okay, why? Hmm. How, what does this accomplish? Uh, 
you're, there is an implicit, of course he does this for our salvation. I, I, I'm glad the Nicene Creed adds that line. Yeah. But then even there, it doesn't sort of say, well, then why did we need this? How does this save us? Yeah. All of that is left undeclared so that it can be explored. I yeah, think. right. Yeah. And that's this conversation, you know, that we're having right now. Right. So, yeah, he was buried, he descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. Adam, let's talk about the whole descended into hell. You want to you go right to that, huh? Well, I mean, you know, the thing I, I run into, at least as a pastor, is I don't, I honestly, for people who are post-Christian, you don't get a lot of blowback about Jesus as, prob- as a probable historical figure that this guy died and that he was buried. If that was true, by the way, if that's where the whole thing ends, he's just another martyr for a cause. Sure. The, the, the challenge to us is that we're claiming he's more than just a martyr for a cause. It's where this thing goes next. Right. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose from the dead. That's where we start to get into, I buy that or I don't buy that. Sure. Yeah. I mean— at the way you put it before is very much in line with where the early church theologians, particularly, well, we've talked before about we don't know exactly when this creed arose, but I believe it's still after this creed arose that you have um, the guys like the Cappadocian fathers, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, um, uh, Basil of Caesarea. They start to really explore language about what all this does for us and the logic of Christ taking our place. So the descended into hell thing is important within those discussions about what Christ accomplishes because what Christ is doing is vicarious. Yeah. He he is he's taking on our humanity and take and and to do that he has to not just take on the physical dimensions of a human life. He can't just sort of um what sometimes have been, has been said about some early theologians that are seen as less careful as wearing sort of a, a, a man suit. That's right. called like spacesuit Christology. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. This is God with just sort of wearing yeah. a you know a human costume. Yeah. Like, no, he has to not just sort of look and feel human. He has to have existentially the human uh, experience. And that experience is the wrong word, but whatever. He has to be fully human right. under judgment. Because and still, that's the even human... as he sits on the right hand of the Father, continues to maintain that. That's true, but th- yeah. there's this narrated yeah. sense. There's this storied sense where okay. the, the humanity he's taking to himself, he's coming to free. Okay. So he comes to take it in its unfreed state. Comes to he it takes onto himself humanity under judgment and alienation from God. And so that's kind of the logic of descended into hell, because that's where humanity is going. Yeah. The humanity he's coming to save is humanity condemned to hell. So Christ takes on that full measure of condemnation. But the important part is that he doesn't stay there. Yeah. Right? He, right. He, though Calvin has some interesting things to say about how because what we're doomed to is eternal mm-hmm. hell, in some sense, Christ temporarily or temporally experienced eternal hell, which is really kind of an odd idea. But I, uh, and I forget where I saw that in Calvin, but there was this notion where like Christ has to have fully taken on what we were doomed to. And that's what we're doomed to. Right. So some way that maybe can't be fully logically uh, put, right. Christ takes all that into himself, but then undoes it. Right. And so, uh, you know, and he emerges. And so you go into the, on the third day rose because he does not remain in hell. The, the Christ who sits on the right hand of the father is not a Christ who is in hell. He's a Christ who has been to hell and has conquered it, but has now, you know, conquered it, emptied it and um, saved its inhabitants to um, or you know those those inhabitants who are in him, 
are, are rescued from that place. It's, and so essentially, you know, descended into hell, third day he rose again from the dead, is declaring the idea that everything that we consider irreversible has been absolutely reversed yeah, by, by, by Jesus Christ. Right. And that's, that is what, what we believe. And now, granted, you know, the resurrection of Christ is the conundrum. I mean, in fact, even Paul the Apostle says in one of his letters to the churches, he says, in fact, in, in the, I think it's 1 Corinthians, he says, if in fact Christ has not been dead, raised from the dead, we're idiots, yeah. right, essentially. Right. To be pitied. Yeah, we're to right. be pitied, you yeah. know. So it, 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 the, just so you know, as listeners who are kind of like, I don't know about these Christians, the Bible's very honest. It's, mm-hmm. not, it's, not, it's not trying to like pull anything on anybody. It's like if in fact he didn't raise from the dead, everything, everything we're saying is completely ludicrous. Right. However, when you really do your homework and you check into it, there is so much evidence out there. And it, by the way, too, there's so many books, by the way, that have been written by people over the last millennia or, or more, I suppose, of people actually trying to disprove the resurrection, ending up being people who fall on their knees into faith hmm. because, oh, wow, this thing really does stand up that he did actually rise again from the grave, which means, again, to me, it's really important. If, if Jesus just died and, he, and you had this miracle of a virgin birth and you buy all that and then he died, but then he stayed dead, well, then he's just another grand, noble martyr who had a point, I guess, about living good life, you know, the Beatitudes. Right, right. But because he rises from the, the dead, this is the thing that we're like, okay, this is something that has to be contended with. Yeah. And um, he truly is the one offering us what he says he can offer us, which is indestructible life, because he's proven he, he, he can offer us indestructible life. He couldn't be crushed. Mm-hmm. Be- before we go on, I want to yeah. rewind just a little bit here <laughs> and, and ask a couple of questions regarding those last couple lines. So when we look at Descended into Hell, we have some popular notions of what hell looks like. We have a wide swath of like what hell may look like. But... What are some ideas when it says that he descended into hell? What can we take away from that? What what does hell look like? I think it. it number one, I think it's helpfully not filled in. Yeah, <laughs> in the creed, but yeah. uh, I, certainly a minimal implication would just be, um, as I put it before, sort of uncon, under condemnation and separation from God. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think it, as much as the Bible does have some. Um, some pictures mm-hmm. to to describe hell. Um, I think I think God trusted the culture to which those pictures were given to unpack them as literary pictures, and we tend to not be so good at that. We tend to just sort of take those pictures and and, and take them quite clumsily and flatly as like, okay, so like it's going to be like flamey, right? Um, all right, maybe, um, but yeah. maybe right. Uh, maybe we need to be a little bit more careful with how some of the biblical language. Uh, is being used and and what it's describing and and honestly within the theological guild today mm-hmm. it's absolute chaos. Yeah. Well, you get people talking, yeah. uh, theologians talking yeah. about what is hell. You're just going to get a bazillion different views, and all of them will be somewhat biblical. They're going to take different biblical sure. passages and try to unpack them. But the consensus that once was there in the church has totally shattered mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of what hell actually is like how right. do you define it so uh, at the very minimum, minimum though we're yeah. talking absence of god yes or okay. even that is a difficult thing to say because god's omnipresent so sure. it's it's some sense right. relational separation from okay. god even if it's not god's metaphysical absence because that's kind of impossible right so let me, let me ask this then when it comes to that and we read that he descended into hell 
I guess one is this what what I'll clumsily label as a trampoline effect. Did he go down, bounce off <laughs> hell, and come right back up? Or the, those three days? Yeah. Were those three days spent in hell? What what can we gather from this? Or do we even need to know? Is that something that's just good question out there? But it's really maybe we don't need to know the answer to that. I think I think the the answer was to that is kind of what Adam had already you know hinted at, which is the idea of like it's an understanding that Jesus Christ in our place as our substitute went through the entirety of of what it was that I would have had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And if you, by the way, listening to this, have not dealt with Jesus Christ as your Savior, who has been your substitute, this is what you face. Mm. That that's really what it what it's getting at. Yeah. And and then he comes back and reverses all of that and says, Now I declare I am the Lord of life. Um and I'm I'm your substitute. I've made a way for you I'm the I'm the way the truth and the life right, um, but to get into too many more details like like you're right. talking like Adam was just kind of referring into I mean I think it's helpful for people to know that even the greatest minds of theology right now are really kind of you know batting this whole thing around about what is hell, um, well largely because they just don't like I think I mean a lot of it is just people don't like the idea of hell but it, oftentimes that's because. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cartoony, mm-hmm. um, or there's there's this struggle over the idea that God could condemn anyone, like no matter yeah. what. But I, to me, I, I think if we start off with sort of that minimal understanding of relational separation from God, and take the idea that um, the entirety of God's actions within human history are to offer and accomplish reconciliation with humanity, to the degree that humans just don't want that. And, and would rather continue in a relational separation from God. Right. Well, then hell is exactly what they want. Yeah. As, as hard as that is to sort of imagine yeah. in, in our contemporary way of talking about things. Yeah. And I don't think hell is a, an enjoyable idea. It's not giving people what they want. And they're like, oh, thanks, God, for eternity. Now I have well, what the, I Yeah, the wanting. one I hear like, oh, I, I like having good times with my friends, so I'm just going to go to hell and have a Krager with right. my friends. It's Obviously. not. It's yes. not. Whatever it is, it's the conception of it is not. Uh, it's not a pleasant experience or or right. thing thing to be had. At the same time, I would say, kind of like what you're dealing with, the great mind of Dallas Willard in his book Renovation of the Heart. You know, he talks about, and I think I'm directly quoting this. He says, you know, the wrong way to think about this is that hell is not an oops, mm. where it's like, you know, you get this pop quiz and then you oops. No, he says, you know, it is it is when you really understand what the New Testament is describing, it is a it is a, a formation of the heart over the the span of a lifetime where the heart gets hardened and hardened and harder and harder and mm. harder. And so you become formed into a person for whom being with God is just not something one would want. Mm. And at the end, instead of, you know, instead of I think it was him or maybe there was another theologian who once said, um, in this life, we were given the opportunity of saying to say to God, "Thy will be done." And at right. the end of our life, if that was not what was formed in our heart, God turns to us and says, "Thy will be done." Hmm. I'll give you a universe where there's no relationship hmm. with me. The other side of that, I think, is important also, just as, as other sort of helpful clarification, so we don't get a cartoony image yeah. of uh, hell in our head. Is I think it's also damaging to understand hell as sort of God's sadistic side project, where there's like. Heaven is like the one place he made to like give people these great stuff. He's like, I also want to have a place where I just unleash the the fury. Yeah, the yeah. most brutal aspects of myself. I mean, there is a sense in which the the there is <clears throat> sorry, the Bible talks about the wrath of God. 
The Bible does talk about the judgment of God as something quite horrible. Um, but to imagine hell as just simply uh, this thing that God makes in, in order for him to be not loving. Whereas, like, you know, love is something he does towards some, but that he, he also, he's like, yeah, but I also have this other part of me that needs expression where I just want to brutalize people. Right. I'm going to make hell as a place to just torture them for eternity. Yeah. That's the other, I mean, but inescapably that gets in people's minds. Yeah. And it is a troubling, I mean, when people can't yeah. escape the idea that that's what hell has to be, then yeah, it's going to cause a lot of theological tension in your mind. Mm-hmm. And it, so it's best just to sort of say, I don't know exactly right. what or why hell is. In the but, same way that we would say yeah. the same thing about heaven. We don't know exactly what sure. heaven is. Sure. You know? We know there's the, there's the tracings of it in the in the scriptures. Right. So there is with this other thing. Well, other and entity. I believe with so many other parts of scripture, there's probably intentionality between being vague yeah. and fully descriptive. Right. But the fully descriptive part that I, the creed picks up you know, I think really well for us is like whatever hell is, it's not something God just wants to unleash on us. It's something he um, took to himself. Right. That Christ himself suffered hell in our right. place. That right. that really reveals the heart of God. Not hell as the heart of God to to torture, but hell as the heart of God to actually save us right. from the horror, the horrible consequences of our and underlying everyone, everyone yeah. is in God's heart with this rescue mission. Mm. Absolutely. And so, as we continue down the trail a little bit, there's this nuance to the next line: the third day he rose again from the dead. There are plenty, plenty, plenty of I'm using air quotes here documentaries out there that talk about numerology and numbers in the Bible. Mm. The fact that we have third day here is that. Something that we need to pick up on? Does it matter how many days? Why is three days significant? Good question. Yeah, it is a good question. I mean, I, I don't know I don't know that I'd weigh into numerology, although you're right, there's all kinds of funny stuff out there. Um, I mean, really, a lot of these uh, numbers, particularly for you know the earliest believers, they, they come out of the roots of the original Testament, often called the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And so they knew these stories of Jonah in, in three days in, in the belly of the fish, not whale. And, um, and so there's these, you know, the, there was these motifs that were immediately recognizable with, with that number. Mm-hmm. But I think really, I don't know, Adam, maybe weigh in, weigh in on this, but I think really this is just, just again, being, like Adam had said earlier, it's just being try to, trying to be very c- concisely descriptive of this is what happened. Right. He, he died at the, the end of Friday and on, <laughs> on the early day, day of, of Sunday, which I know there's all those debates that people get into. That's not an actual three days uh, in terms of hours, but in terms of how the the ancient Near East would count three days, it, that's right. three days. Right. Okay. And I think it's descriptive. Is that kind of what you would? Yeah. Yeah. To me, the important part is the fact that he was really dead and he really rose. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I probably don't have a lot of interesting things to say about the three days of it, but just the fact that there is some kind of, at least I've heard that preached. I don't know if that's biblically intentional. Just the idea that that is a number that makes it pretty clear that he's really dead. <laughs> he's not holding his breath for three days. Right. Of course, right. what's biblically intentional yeah. about that is the sword in the side, right. like the bleeding of water and, right. uh, and, and yeah. blood. Uh, but but I think we can say the question you asked about like people who get into like numerology and all that kind of stuff, that is not what's intended right. by the, uh, the writers who summarize this Apostles' Creed. Right. And so moving on then, mm-hmm. he ascended... Into heaven. When we talk about 
the word ascension. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? And so many times we've seen this in film or I guess Bible-based like cartoons, right? We, we see Jesus going up in an invisible elevator of sorts. Like Willy Wonka. You right. Know? It's like the, right. The, the, the first movie. Yeah. So is that what we're reading out of this? <laughs> I mean, I don't, that's a good question. I think literarily there's quite an intentional balancing to the descended into hell. Right. Right. He's descended into hell. He's ascended into heaven. Yeah. There is, though, I mean, I, I'm actually um, inclined toward literal readings of that. There is more than that. There is clearly mm. a poetic aspect of, of, Descent and ascent in the in the sense of conquering hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, he rises victorious from his descent into hell and is crowned sort of king of all the universe in this um, ascension to heaven. But does he? I mean, the the two kind of I feel like popular theories I've seen a lot. Luther has it. I've seen, seen it in sort of C.S. Lewis is that what re- ascension does not mean sort of a literal physical going up, but a sort of translation into. Uh, Luther saw it as in Christ's um, physically bounded existence into his omnipresent existence. To be mm-hmm. there at the right hand of the Father is to go into that mode of existence. Um, whereas uh, Calvin and, and, and the traditions following him have seen this as like, no, a pretty literal, like Christ in his physically embodied humanity went somehow where no one can go. You cannot go to the right hand of the Father because the Father is omnipresent. He's not located right. in any particular throne room there. You yeah. can sit in his right hand. But right. importantly, Christ did because mm. because Christ is bearing our humanity vicariously now, our redeemed humanity. Christ stands before the Father in heaven so that our our embodied human existence now is a part of God's own heavenly life mm. that uh, within, yeah, in ways that are just almost impart, impossible to put right. in really clear descriptive language. Right. You just have to sort of say it kind of poetically that Christ in his full humanity is where God is and is bearing mm. our redeemed humanity to mm. the Father in, on our behalf. Well, continuing on then, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Hmm. Is there significance that he is seated at the right hand of God? Yeah, it's like the that's like the, the, the place of the it's the place of honor. Yeah. You know, and rule and authority is right. kind of what we're getting at there. So, you know, when he's sitting sitting there, it's it's talking about the fact that he going going back to conversations we've already had in this podcast about the triunity of mm-hmm. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is kind of what this is relating to he didn't return in some lesser role of authority right. he, he he that's that's where he resides okay um it's interesting too because you know the apostle paul talks a lot he's the one who mentions this quite a bit in his letters to the churches mm. you know that you know jesus is seated at the right hand of the father and some people think oh so what that means is is like god the father and we've re- we've related to this if you've listened on the podcast like god the father's the mad guy he's the one who wants to throw everybody into hell and he, Jesus is the good guy, and so he's sitting at the right hand to remind God the Father, whoa, 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 go easy on him, kind of thing. And and some people have that conception, that, and that's really not that's really not what's playing out. It's just this, it's again, it's this communion of the Father who is like, I'm, I'm was glad to send him, and glad to enact through the Holy Spirit the virgin birth, glad 
to have him suffer for the sake of others in order that we can increase the size of this family, mm-hmm. so to speak. And 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 that's and it's so it's so that we can understand. We have confidence. Hebrews talks about in Hebrews ten, um, you know. Therefore, draw near to God with bold assurance. Mm. It's that idea of like the one who was our substitute is seated at the right hand of the Father in constant communion with the Holy Trinity, and we can have that confidence in our relationship with the Holy Trinity because He's sitting at the right hand of the right. Father. Hebrews has that sort of uh, priestly role. Yeah, it, it really fills in that what Christ is doing there at the right hand of the Father is sort of being humanity's ambassador. Um, you know, again, bearing our redeemed humanity yeah. within the life of God. Now, does this yeah. also go to, because I know in, in ancient times when they often had like banquets or feasts that mm. the person sitting to the right hand of like the host or, or something would actually be like the, the person of honor. Yeah. So that plays yeah, into that as well. Absolutely. The symbolism. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, that's th- a great question. If you think of us then, it was, especially within Paul's language of like, we are in Christ, that our life is hidden with Christ yep. in God. That means that like... Christ holds that place of honor mm. in that heavenly banquet in, in our place, and that's our and identity are, now. Yes, yeah. like even in you know, even though we're right right now, as we sit around this table doing this podcast, we're sitting around a circular table. <laughs> but in Christ, because we've placed our faith in in Jesus, just like Adam was saying, is we share in His identity, right? Which is just crazy. I mean, <laughs> the, I, I, let me just pause and have a moment of praise. The scandal of God. I don't deserve anything from this God, hmm. that he would allow all of what we're just talking about through Jesus Christ is indeed completely scandalous. Yeah. And then to be able to share in that identity, it's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, let's land the plane here with this this last verse for, for this episode anyway. Mm-hmm. And it reads this, from there, meaning from the right hand of the Father, he will come to judge the living and the dead. What can we take from that? I mean, we... It, it continues and expands on the sense that Christ is glorified, mm-hmm. that he is he is seated at the right hand of the Father in the place of honor, and so it is his, um, you know, all dominion over heaven and earth has been given to Christ, so he will come from that place um, at the culmination of history. Um, we, a modern American audience will probably have negative connotations with the idea of judge, but if, if we fill that in more fully biblically, think about the book of Judges, mm-hmm. where the role of the judge was not just to sort of condemn, but it's to rule. Take it's, some button, take some names. That's right. not strictly... It's actually kind of a kingly title in the right. book of Judges. It's, yeah. it's, it's almost like uh, a placeholder, because they don't really have an official king at that time. Mm-hmm. So they had judges that did the work of a king. They they rule. They reign, they they enact peace. Mm-hmm. They establish peace uh, in their time, at least, uh, within, um, within their domain. So, yeah, Christ will come. You know, this is pointing to that future hope that Christ will come consummate history, establish justice and peace, there is the the fearful part. There is the part that people don't like, that Christ will, um, there, there will, you know, the Bible does speak of sort of a separation, that humanity will will face its maker. And um, for those who, who whose existence simply is, you know, hardened and, and want to just escape the goodness of God, there is something quite fearful in the idea that, that God will come and judge. But to those who trust that the coming judge is the one who has gone to hell in our place, whose, whose desire is to love, redeem, and reconcile us above all things, mm. then that's an extraordinarily hopeful thing to look for, that this judge, the judge who received the judgment in our place, will come and, and bring that reconciling judgment to the world. And I think the thing is, is even, even for a person who's committed in their unbelief, 
um, you know, you're post-Christian. You don't need it. You don't need any of this crap. What I would say to you, if you're listening, is is that what this is speaking to is you know, you know what you feel in your gut. You read about terror attacks. You read about people in Aleppo and children, Syrian children, and you read and you just, with, with everything within you just wells up like, who is going to change this? Mm. When will there be justice? Mm. Ah, interesting that you feel that. Right. This is speaking to that answer. Mm. You know, Jesus Christ came, and this is one of the things that the Jews were really contending with, because at the time, they did, they, they, you know, and I get it, I would have probably made the same mistake, so please understand. Mm. You know, they, they were thinking that the Messiah was immediately going to usher in political power and influence and, and then make everything right with the world. And that what they didn't understand was that first and foremost, God was at first going to make it so that human beings who don't deserve a relationship with God could be brought back into redemption and reconciliation mm. with God. That then sets up the, the full picture, which we read about in Revelation, where Jesus, we read in the, in, he stands with, at the throne or sits on the throne and he yells out, he says, behold, I'm making all things new. Okay, well, so what, what that tells us is, is that right now, for those of you who do, do believe and don't believe, we look around, we read the headlines. All things are not new. Right. Mm. There is injustice. There is evil in this world. And even if you believe or un- don't believe, there's something within us that cries out for justice. What this is telling us is that the one who is this perfect 100% mix of love and mercy will come as the judge to enact justice and and not only enact justice but to at the end all things will be made new and that newness is re- described in this way there will be no more no more mourning no more death no more crying no more pain for the old order has passed away mm. i don't care if you don't believe or not mm. you can hear that and go i hope for that now you're going to hope for it through politics and the people you vote for or some sort of something but you're hoping for that. Sure. And in, in, in this, we're saying we believe that ultimately Christ is the one who's going to deliver it. Mm. Amen. And so when it comes to that part of judging the living, you know, I think at least in pop culture, even if we were from a, a as, Andy, as you put it, a, a post-Christian worldview. Yeah. We often at least have a, a popular cultural understanding of like, oh, you know, Christians believe that when you die, you know, you'll go before God or Jesus or whomever they're talking about. But when it talks about judging the living, what is that all about? Hmm. That, I mean, <laughs> well, I, I mean, suppose that I, 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 to me, it speaks to the fact that this is a, this is a day that is coming within human history and there will be people still alive as right. it happens. There will be people who see the return of Christ actually happen well paul talks about a rapture and you can get in all kinds of debates with different theological perspectives of when that'll happen and what that is and all that kind of thing but basically what the new testament letters to the churches describes there's going to come a point in time when a day like today happens and history is summed up hmm. and that the end the the beginning of the end begins hmm. or, or the end of the beginning starts hmm. and the let me say that again. The end of the beginning. <laughs> C.S. Lewis is kind of way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, uh, starts with Christ's return, yeah. and there will be people who haven't haven't passed away yet. There will be people who are actually still alive and they love Jesus, and people who don't. Right. 
So I yeah, think that's okay. what that's getting at. Gentlemen, any final thoughts before we land the plane on this episode? No, I mean, this is good. I hope, I hope it doesn't bore people, but people can really understand. Oh, I mean, this is stuff that it's not just a bunch of words. I, I guess the thing, and this goes back to what we were talking about, about the creed when we started this, mm-hmm. is that people think that dogma and doctrine is like this just plastic thing that people of faith believe robotically and nothing could be i mean i guess that can happen right and that is when it does it's okay to critique that but that's not really the essence of where this thing starts with it actually comes from this very deeply visceral complete uh, mental emotional physical understanding of what it is that god has done for us and um it's deeply meaningful yeah yeah, to me, the, where I would you know sort of end on the reflections of this, what has been a really kind of enjoyable yeah. hour, forty-five minutes or whatever this has been. Um, to me, what this sums up is the fact that when the Bible says God is love, it's talking it's talking about a history, and it's the history we've just described that we're not talking about God being sentimental hmm. when we say that God is love. It's not just that God's up in heaven feeling a certain way; that God has expressed His love in this story Mm. that he has taken on flesh he's taken on humanity and suffered on our behalf in order to bring us to that heavenly banquet that we might sit at his right hand that's what god's love really looks like it has that very particular historical with a guy named pontius Pilate. all the peculiarities of history are wrapped up in this love that god's actually done something about that that gives me like goosebumps yeah amen Well, thanks for joining us on this episode of Truth Seekers Forum. Truth Seekers Forum is a production of Faith Community Church in Santa Cruz, California. To learn more about Truth Seekers Forum or Faith Community Church, please visit us online at santacruzfaith.org.